You're listening to Behold Diana. This is episode five. Chapter 6. The following summer, having completed the high school commercial course, I took a full-time job with a local lawyer, C.R. Fitch, Q.C. It proved to be a great temptation to the local school kids to change the first letter on the nameplate of his office to a B, causing him great embarrassment. Mr. Fitch was cantankerous yet charming, and I enjoyed working for him very much. I knew deep within myself that I was a born dilettante and was not cut out for a career in one field. Despite this, gaining experience in the business world became my absorbing interest. This, together with a growing desire to throw away forever all vestiges of manhood, became my main preoccupation in life. The opportunity to make some small modifications in my sexual identity arrived much sooner than I anticipated. Mother announced one day that she and Dad were going to spend the whole summer at Emo with her sister Esther. She felt that at 17, I was old enough to take care of myself. Emo is a little town about 30 miles from Fort Francis, connected to it by rail and bus. It was small and quiet, really just a railroad stop for farmers to load and unload produce and livestock. Uncle Fred and Aunt Esther were very close to my parents. Because Dad was not on a government pension for the blind and unable to work, this vacation was an ideal setup. For me, it meant freedom. I worked during the week and spent the weekends with the family in Emo, making the weekly trek by bus. On each of these excursions, I had the company of my budgie, Tico, whom I carried in his cage. Upon arriving, I was always greeted wildly by our toy Pomeranian Tootsie, a grayish-black bundle of fur. During the week, I missed her very much. Having lived and moved in a growing number of small towns in northern Ontario, I longed for a taste of big city life. There, I knew I could be anonymous and would have the opportunity to cross-dress without fear of detection. I was in a state of emotional upheaval. I was becoming restless, and I yearned to get away from my parents. In addition, I wanted financial security. The following weekend, during supper, I broke the news to Mum and Dad. Surprisingly, they did not object. Of course, I didn't entirely make them privy to all my plans or to the lifestyle I was about to emulate. What surprises me today is the fact that they didn't have any suspicions. The idea was firmly planted in my mind, and I made it a reality. I took the train to Winnipeg. Train rides have a dreamy, hypnotic effect on me. Lulled by the rumbling of the engines, my eyes fixed on the passing countryside, I became composed. I arrived in Winnipeg in the forenoon of the following day. I was dressed in women's clothes, blonde wig, a light coat, cotton print dress, and high-heeled shoes. A taxi took me to a third-rate hotel near Portage in Maine. I was extremely nervous. Did I really look like a woman? Would they suspect anything? I gave the driver a dollar bill and told him to keep the change. This was quite generous considering I had no job and very little cash. I had spent a considerable amount of my savings on my newly acquired wardrobe. Several years ago in the province of Manitoba, women were not allowed to drink in bars with men. In my nervousness and haste to get inside the hotel, register, and retitivate myself in the seclusion of my room, I entered the wrong door. I found myself in a smelly, sweaty, smoke-filled beverage room and was accompanied by guffaws, laughter, and wolf whistles. "'Come on! Come and join us!' shouted one plaid-shirted laborer, wiping the beer foam from his mouth and chin with the back of his unwashed hand." I didn't answer, but backed out of the door and onto the street, still clutching my luggage. I found the main entrance and went inside. The lobby was small and cheap-looking, but so were the rates I was about to discover. "'Good morning, miss,' said an anemic-looking youth behind the desk. "'I'd like a room on a weekly basis.' 
Yes, I think I've got one that would be suitable. It's on the third floor, nice and sunny, has a good view of the city. That sounds fine. How much will that be? It's $35 a week, and I'll have to ask you for a $10 deposit. I arranged to pay the balance the following Friday. I fumbled in my wallet and produced a crumpled $10 bill. I'll give you a receipt. Now, while I'm writing it out, would you be good enough to fill out the registration form? Shakily, in the section marked name, I wrote Diana Boileau and filled in my Fort Francis address. The section headed business address, I left blank. I handed it back to him and he perused it. Then he said, I guess you're looking for a job here in Winnipeg. What do you do? He asked curiously. I'm a legal stenographer. I was working for a leading lawyer back home, I volunteered. You shouldn't have any trouble finding work here. They're crying out for good secretaries. That's great, I said. I'll have one of the boys bring your bags up right away. Here, don't forget your receipt, he said, handing me the slip. His knowledge of the Winnipeg job market proved to be somewhat short of accurate. Whereas I had envisioned a city full of business tycoons running classified ads for experienced secretaries and my being able to pick one at a desirable salary, this was not the case. When I browsed through the Winnipeg Free Press the following day, there were a few jobs, but I didn't have the required experience for any of them. I really didn't have much choice, so I decided to phone a couple and see if I could at least partially qualify. I selected two that read, Executive Secretary. Vice President requires secretary with top skills and solid experience, especially in documentation and leases. Young group, looking for someone to pitch in. Salary high. The second sounded even better. Queen B. Interested in working for several men and a honey of a boss? Congenial co-workers, top benefits, luxury downtown offices, public contact. The right gal will have top typing and shorthand and a big smile on her face. Call now. I applied for both. The first interview lasted only about three or four minutes. Apparently, they were looking for someone far more experienced than I. The honey of a boss turned out to be a sour-faced, balding executive of around 50, and the congenial co-workers were two middle-aged women who looked as if they had been with the company since its inauguration. "'Any luck today, miss?' asked the desk clerk as I passed him that evening after a fruitless day of job hunting. Besides answering the two ads, I had also registered at the local government employment office." No, nothing today. Maybe I'll be luckier tomorrow, I said, continuing to walk across the threadbare faded carpet. I headed toward the elevator. It was the same story for the balance of the week. My funds were fast dwindling, and I knew I wouldn't be able to meet the weekly rent on my room. I felt so lonely. I just had to meet someone to talk to. So I decided to go down to the main lobby. I took up my position near the main door. I noticed the desk clerk glancing at me disapprovingly, but I became friendly with one of the fellows who lived in the hotel. He asked me to his room for a drink. I didn't drink, but I accepted his invitation. We became good friends. He was quite affluent and always seemed to have several hundred dollars on him, some in hundred dollar bills. I had never seen so much money in my life. He had a rented car and he took me all over Winnipeg. We visited the zoo and the cathedral at St. Boniface. There was one problem. He had a girlfriend. She visited him regularly, and on several occasions, she met us returning from a trip or sitting in his room chatting. She was suspicious of me. She discovered I was wearing a wig and made a point of telling everyone in the hotel. One of the first to be told was the manager. Saturday dawned. I was up at 6.30 because I had planned on leaving and finding a new room. How I was going to get out without paying the balance of my rent with all my luggage, I didn't know. It was around noon when there was a loud pounding on my door. I answered, thinking it was my friend John. Two police officers stood in the doorway. We've had several complaints from other guests in the hotel that you've been hanging around in the lobby, miss. Is that correct? Yes, I've been down in the lobby, but it's only because I've been lonely. I'm from Fort Francis, and I don't know a soul in Winnipeg. Just how old are you? He muttered, taking out a code book. Seventeen, I replied. He continued to take down a mass of details with particular emphasis on my parents. Where were they staying? Did they have a telephone there? Did they know I was in Winnipeg? After further interrogation, I volunteered my male name because I knew they would be contacting my parents. 
This thoroughly confused them. Winnipeg was not accustomed to cross-dressing, judging from the embarrassment of these police officers who had never come across a similar situation before. I think you'd better come along with us to the general hospital for a medical report. We want to know just what you are. This is a problem for the doctors, not the police department. After a routine examination to determine my true sex, I was taken to the police station, where I was kept overnight in a special room. My very distraught parents arrived at police headquarters the next afternoon to face life-shattering news concerning their son. They were flabbergasted. I had been successful in keeping my activities about dressing as a woman a dark secret. Never in their sheltered lives had they ever heard of a boy dressing as a woman. The sight of me in the complete attire of a woman made mother weep and father fume. On the recommendation of the hospital, the police told my parents that I needed medical help. I knew Dr. Chalice already understood my situation, so I was not afraid to discuss this with him and my parents. We returned to Fort Francis, and Dr. Chalice saw us the following afternoon. Prior to this meeting, the atmosphere at home had been very cool, and I shut myself in my room until the appointment. Dr. Chalice explained to Mum and Dad that in his considered opinion, I was a transsexual. He disclosed how I had already confided in him concerning my problem, and told them about the tests he had previously completed. He went into details as to his familiarity with the subject because of his association with Dr. Cowell. He pointed out that although my parents knew nothing about my transsexuality, it did not alter the fact that it was far more common than was generally known. In summation, he asked them for a guarantee of their support and understanding. Surgery was available in other parts of the world, and eventually, he told them, he foresaw it being performed in Canada. My parents were wonderfully understanding, though still frightened and bewildered. They moved again, this time strictly for my sake. Home was set up in Port Arthur. The city has since been renamed Thunder Bay. They moved ahead to a third-floor apartment in St. Patrick's Square, and I joined them two weeks later as their daughter, Diana. Chapter 7 Under the circumstances, life in Port Arthur continued with as much normalcy as possible. Mother accepted and enjoyed having a daughter, but she missed the intimacy of Fort Francis. Big cities were not for her. She had long ago learned to accept the limitations of household drudgery in a small town. The difference between a city of about 35,000 people and one of 9,000 people can be startling. Dad adapted much better to city life. He loved to wander down to the harbor area and watch the ships berthing at the grain elevators. Everything was on such a massive scale that even his failing eyesight could discern their shape and some of the detail. My conflict with Dad, though not a conflict in the true sense, was difficult to resolve. Bored by not being able to work because his eyesight was becoming rapidly worse, he became skeptical of my situation. He wondered aloud if he was doing the right thing by allowing me to dress as a woman. One advantage for him, though, was the better medical care for his eyes. He began a course of treatment that culminated several years later in surgery. I will never know if it was mother's urging and nagging that made him return with her to Fort Francis. I analyzed my own position and asked myself what I was going to do with my life. Socially, I was almost an outcast. What should I do? Less than a week after my parents departed, I left for Calgary, where I checked into the YWCA. The YWCA is internationally an all-female institution, and the Calgary branch is no exception. I am sure I was probably their first and last male resident. Naturally, they don't compel each guest to undergo a medical examination to determine sex, but I am sure the male equivalent YMCA in Calgary or anywhere else cannot boast having had a woman stay with them for any length of time. I didn't want to press my luck too far, so I decided to move to a guest home called The Villa. 
I got a job as a public stenographer with an office on the fifth floor of the Royal Bank building, where Rosemary was employed as an elevator operator. We had had a nodding acquaintanceship for several weeks before we actually started to speak, and then we only dealt in perfunctory remarks, what's the weather like outside, and other small talk. I remember one particular job assignment at the Palliser Hotel, which was a large commercial hotel run by the Canadian National Railways. I was to take dictation from an American oil tycoon who was in Calgary for a few days, finalizing a deal for the takeover of a group of oil wells. I was told to take dictation in his room and return to my office about four blocks away for the typing. When I arrived in the hotel lobby, I glanced in a nearby gilt-framed mirror and walked toward the house phones, but for some unknown reason, I decided not to call, but to go straight up. I left the elevator on the seventh floor, looked at the room numbers on the signs to determine direction, and saw his room to my right. I knocked on the door, and a burly, well-dressed man opened it. "'Here, take this,' he said, eyeing me up and down while pushing a ten-dollar bill into my hand. "'Come back in an hour. I've got this bitch coming up to take dictation. Can't see you now,' he hissed, and closed the door in my face. I looked at the ten-dollar bill incredulously. Why had he given me ten dollars? "'A man becomes very righteous,' I thought, before his testicles are empty.' I knocked again on the door, this time using a different staccato. He opened it. I thought, he expostulated. I'm that bitch, I interrupted with a sneer on my face. Oh, I'm sorry, he gasped. I was expecting someone else. Please, come in, he said with an easy drawl. I handed him the ten dollars. Disregarding anything else he might need, he spent the next hour giving me dictation. I found being a public stenographer was not a full-time occupation. There were many hours, even days, when I had a great deal of spare time. Because I was paid on an hourly basis, this meant my paycheck fluctuated. I saw an ad in the Calgary Herald for Cost House, an art school that was looking for female models. I phoned for an appointment. I had become very secure in knowing that I looked the complete woman, but I might be going too far, I thought, if I posed in front of a group of very with-it students. I called the number and, speaking to the director of the school, discovered I was not required to pose nude. I uttered an audible sigh of relief when he told me this. He asked quietly, "'What's the matter?' He was observant enough, even over the telephone, to discern the lessening of my tension. I hesitated. "'Oh, nothing.' "'I understand,' he said. "'Some girls just don't want to take their clothes off.' "'You don't have to worry,' he continued. "'You'll be clothed or at least draped all the time.' I inquired a few moments later. "'How much do you pay?' Five dollars an hour, he said. Then it will increase to six dollars after six months. That sounds great, I said, quaking inwardly. Why don't you come over to the school tomorrow around eleven? You know where we're located? Yes, I do, I said, recalling the large stone mansion with a sign Cost House impaled in the lawn. Ask for Professor Brown when you arrive. There'll be a class in progress, so I'll show you around. Fine, I'll see you at eleven tomorrow morning. Looking forward to meeting you, I lied, as I tremblingly replaced the receiver. My hands were wet and clammy, and I was full of conflicting feelings. All that evening, and the early part of the following morning, I spent amid oceans of creamy depilatories, removing every vestige of masculine hair from my arms and legs. I tweezed my eyebrows to a delicate arch, and plucked the odd hair on my upper lip and chin. I dressed meticulously, and left the villa at about 10 a.m. in good time to take the bus. After a perfunctory interview and a whirlwind tour of the building, I was accepted. I attended my first sitting the following week. The director handed me over to one of the female art instructors. She told me that I would be posing for students who were learning oil painting, and that this would entail taking and holding a pose for 30 minutes, followed by a 10-minute break, then back to the pose. This to continue for a period of up to three hours. I was relieved to find I could wear my own clothes, except for the occasional time when I would be required to sit draped. This day arrived sooner than I had anticipated. I was ushered into the dressing room, an oversized cubicle off the main classroom. I stripped to my undergarments and started to drape myself in front of the full-length mirror. I gathered the folds of the sheet in a clenched fist and held on so tightly I almost tore a hole in the fabric. 
Are you ready, Miss Boylo? came the inquiring voice of the art teacher through the door. Yes, just coming, I sang back in reply. Slowly, I inched my way toward the raised platform, topped by a wooden chair. My eyes caught the curious stares in a sea of faces. Each student had a brush poised to permanently record my contours. I struggled to subordinate my flesh. I knew I sadly lacked the geometric figure of the goddess Diana. I sat on the chair. I'd like you to turn around with your back to the class. Head a little higher, that's great. Hold that pose, please. I was too terrified to even as much as tense a muscle. I worked an average of nine hours a week for the next several months until I found myself in the more lucrative world of television commercials. The rehearsals for my television debut, a dry cleaning commercial, took place in a Calgary studio. I was surprised that the television station was so small. There was just one main studio with several sets placed strategically in the four corners. They looked vaguely familiar to me from programs I had seen. The center of the studio was a mass of wires, cameras, glaring lights, and general confusion. I was coached by a handsome producer until I was word perfect, but the producer insisted I read my lines from a cue card. I had given a spiel about the whiteness of my husband's shirts, and he was amazed at my composure and ease before the cameras. Where did you learn to act? He asked after a while. This was, of course, a compliment that delighted me. I told him about the acting classes given by the nuns at school. You should take some more lessons. You've got real natural talent. Like every other aspiring actress, I dreamed of breaking into the big time. I did score one more minor success when a few weeks later I was asked to try out for an automobile commercial. It was to be filmed at the dealer's showroom. It lasted about three minutes, during which I had to open the car door and describe the elegant interior. Suspended from the ceiling were several microphones. The technicians had to constantly move these because, being so tall, they were too low for me. I was still working as a public stenographer, and seeing Rosemary in the elevator on a daily basis enabled us to become close friends. Over lunch one day, she told me she was looking for someone to share a furnished house she'd just rented. I volunteered, and we moved in the following week. Soon after we moved in together, Rosemary said to me, Diana, I want you to meet my aunt. She's invited us to her house for dinner. She has a lovely home in the east end of the city. It was lovely too, and I found her to be a brilliant woman with a keen sense of politics. I spent a fascinating evening in her home. Brenda Reagan was a politician, an elegant woman in her late 50s who had steel-gray hair and was immaculately dressed. The visit turned out to be most congenial. She took me on a tour of the whole house, and upon reaching the bedroom, she showed me her fabulous collection of hats. Those days in Calgary made excessive demands on my physical and nervous energy, but there was such an aura of excitement that I knew I had been right to leave my parents and the stifling routine of Fort Francis. I was quickly bored by routine and made many friends who were unusual and fascinating. People like Viva and Vicky, whom I met in rapid succession. I met Vicky at the YWCA shortly after the filming of the commercial. She was tall and elegant with blue-black hair and was of Indian and Irish ancestry. I discovered she played the alternating roles of religious fanatic and hooker. A few days before our meeting, after making a lurid confession to the local parish priest, she had given up her well-used bed-sitting room and, duly reformed, had moved to the Y. She was still in this state of grace when we met. She told me she was a telephone operator with the phone company. I had no reason to doubt her, especially when she went to Mass daily. Some weeks later, I arrived in the lobby of the Palliser Hotel about 15 minutes early for one of my stenographic jobs. I encountered Vicky coming out of one of the elevators looking tussled and disheveled after an obviously heavy night. Hi, Diana, she said. I just couldn't believe this was the same Vicky I knew. Her breath smelled of stale booze. She was bleary-eyed and still a little high. She was unaware that I was a boy, nor of my monkish mode of living, nor my wild celibacy. Vicky invited me to the coffee shop across the street for some hot tea. She told me there was ample opportunity for a girl with my looks to make a fortune in Calgary, following her profession. She regaled me with minute details of every lascivious act known to woman, but I told her bluntly I wasn't interested in becoming a whore or a gourmet of masculine flesh. I must say something here about 
about Viva, who I also met around this time. She was a chronic alcoholic, about 40. Rosemary had met her when they worked as co-elevator operators in one of the local hotels. Viva's career was short-lived. One day, she was found by the manager slumped on the bottom of the cage, sound asleep, the elevator stuck between floors. Rosemary, always one to help the underdog, lent her money after she was fired. Most of it, I suspect, was spent on booze for her and her boyfriend, Don. Behold Diana is produced by Borderland Pride. This episode was a reading from Behold, I Am a Woman, a novel by Diana as told to Felicity Cochran. It was performed, recorded, and edited by Caitlin Hartland. Our music is by The Night Driver, and our sound was mixed by MJ Interactive.